Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 96. We're dealing with the period 1826 to around 1828, and Southern Africa was a rich patchwork of expanding Trekboers. Shaka had been setting up his empire in Zululand. The Khoi and the Bustas were traveling and raiding along the Orange River, and Amma and Debele were on the move into the Highfield. Of course, 1826 was not a great year if you were Lord Charles Somerset, who had been hastened home after his administration had been scrutinized with an intense scrut, to quote Spike Milligan. Lord Bathurst had set up the advisory council in Cape Town, a kind of forerunner to the cabinet in the days of the governor merely printing his edicts as law were over. The council then approached a rather thorny problem of creating a separate council for the eastern districts, the eastern Cape, so to speak, but they held off for the meantime, at least until after slavery was abolished. The new lieutenant governor replacing Somerset was Bork, who'd waved Lord Charles off in March 1826 to the relative peace at Brighton back in England. The need for a resident authority further east along the frontier was met in a while by a compromise. That was when Dutch speaker André Stockenstrom, Landrost of Graf Renet, was appointed Commissioner General at Grahamstown and was to report on all the affairs of the eastern districts, including Beaufort West in the Karoo. But that's in two years' time. Meanwhile, the English administration was causing ripples of discontent in the Cape. Many Dutch-speaking landowners made the shift to supporting George III with ease. Others were not going quietly. Two of the Burger senators resigned in protest against the government's new slave policy. Remember, the British had passed new laws protecting slaves against arbitrary punishment. There was a political restlessness growing in England's colonies as well. As the British intellectual class began to rail against the evils of slavery, English men who had plantations in the West Indies and Trekboers who had farms in the Cape took exception to the rise of humanitarianism. It was going to impact their profits, they said. The Cape citizens petitioned the British Parliament to be allowed a representative assembly, but this was refused. The British were having endless trouble in persuading the elected legislatures in the West Indies to improve the conditions of the slaves, and they didn't want another group of slave owners in the Cape following suit. Lieutenant Governor Bork wrote that there were not enough white men in the Cape to form a good assembly anyway. Further away to the northeast, Sharka would not have agreed with this view. He was far more accepting of the settlers he met. Bizarrely, perhaps, but when you hear the stories about what he was up to with the assistance of the English traders, perhaps you'll agree. It was a year before, in October 1825, Sharka had been informed of a shipwreck on the sandbar at Isibubulungu, Port Natal. Henry Francis Finn was already living at the port, along with Francis Farewell. The infamous sandbar had struck once again. This time it was James Saunders King, the man who had tried to convince the British to seize Port Natal as a trading entrepot. In exchange, of course, he wanted to be made an officer of the British Navy. The British Navy declined the deal. Now King was back, but wrecked on board the Mary. Farewell, of course, was secretly pleased. Remember, his plan to claim Port Natal had been stolen by King, and Farewell sniggered at King's shipwrecking. Henry Francis Finn, meanwhile, had taken a liking to living with Sharka. They had spent months hunting elephants, and he had bagged a fortune in ivory. Life was hard for the settlers here in the early days of Natal, but the rewards were vast. James Saunders King had rented the Mary, which he'd now managed to wreck, 
but he was not alone on that humid beach in October. Swimming alongside were Nathaniel Isaacs and Charles Warden McLean. Isaacs is an entire podcast series himself, and I said we'd be hearing a lot more from him, and here he is. Nathaniel Isaacs's stories about Sharker would form the core narrative of Sharker's mythology, and some of his comments actually still appear in school textbooks. It's been a long road weeding out this teenager's overwritten memories from our consciousness, but he was quite an interesting chap, nevertheless. We'll have to dig deep here, folks, and the story is not for the squeamish. Isaacs was barely 17 when he left his home in Liverpool on board another vessel heading south, and the poor wretch was sexually abused by the captain of that ship. A few torrid weeks later, he landed in St. Helena and sought an escape, and there he met James Saunders King, who had anchored off the island on the Mary. King hired him, and now we jump a few months forward, and here they all are, shipwrecked in Port Natal. Isaacs was to spend three years in Port Natal, including stints living with Sharka at his Kwa and Kwa de Kusa homesteads. He wrote of this much later, or at least he hired someone else to ghostwrite his story in 1836, and his memory has exaggerated many things. There are lies and misunderstandings, but he also has gems of information for historians. Isaacs would leave Southern Africa, by the way, to become a slave trader in West Africa and owned a slave station on an island off Sierra Leone, just for clarification. Some folks have deified Isaacs' story, but as we know, the past is nuanced and fickle. As Isaacs paddled to the beach that October day in 1825, alongside him in the shark-infested waters of Port Natal was Charles Rawdon McLean. He was only 14. In later life, Charles McLean would find himself with a new name and a legend, John Ross. He would become one of the most strident anti-slavery voices until his death in 1880, and his adopted name, John Ross, now anoints a highway built between Empangani and Richards Bay. Isaacs, you could say, went 180 degrees the other way and made a fortune out of slavery. That's why you probably won't find a Nathaniel Isaacs Highway in South Africa, although there is a Nathaniel Isaacs Road in Amanzimtoti. Back to our story. On the 20th of October, 1825, Five bedraggled sailors gathered at the half-built and primitive shabby-looking Fort Farewell at Port Natal, adorned by a couple of neglected cannons pointing nowhere in particular. Sharker heard about the wreck and the Nkosi expected them to show respect and come visit. And so, on the 26th of October, Finn, Farewell and King set out to Kwa Bulawaho on the Mfolozi Flats. Isaacs and McLean were left behind to meet Matubani, who lived nearby. They were youngsters anyway, and not of much significance. After a week of hard slog, Finn, Farewell and King arrived at Kwabuluwao, and there were greeted in a friendly manner by Shaka, but also with an air of haughty indifference, which might be expected from what they called the Napoleon of Africa. Shaka was in conference most of the time, and when he had a break, cast off his stern look, became good-humoured, and conversed with us through our interpreters on various subjects. By various, they mean guns. Shaka wanted another display of these weapons. He picked a passing herd of elephants and ordered them to shoot one, and somehow, after the traders protested, they managed to down an elephant more by luck than design, Henry Francis Finn admitted later. His magic was then immediately roped in by Shaka to visit the Zulu king's dying grandmother, she was 80 years old at this point and had dysentery. At least, that's what Finn thought when he saw her. 
When he returned and told Shaka there was no hope for Granny, the king cried. Imsumbiti, the interpreter, explained to Finn that Shaka loved his grandmother and visited her often. He would wash her eyes and ears and cut her toenails and treated her like a father treats a child. Finn could hardly believe this. One moment Shaka was spearing warriors to death for the slightest infraction and the next he was cutting Granny's toenails. It's true, said Imsumbiti. He was what the Zulu people called an opposite character. He appeared bipolar in modern parlance. Or perhaps he had borderline personality disorder. Or maybe he was schizophrenic. His actions imply wild swings between intense joy and deep, dark melancholy. Shaka's response to his granny's death was extraordinary, at least as far as these English traders were concerned. The tidings of her passing caused him to contemplate the event in deep silence until the feelings burst up on him, and he cried loudly, which set the nation in a general uproar. Everyone at Kwambulawo was ordered into mourning. Some were killed for not crying enough, even after they took to rubbing wild onions into their eyes. King and co. left, but Nathaniel Isaacs was then sent for and arrived at Kwambulawo in December 1825. He was to make four visits to Shaka between then and November 1826, spending about 44 days in total with the king. During one visit, we know, he witnessed 20 killings, including three men who were led away, beaten then. A stick was inhumanely forced up the fundament of each, and they were left as food for the wild beasts of the forest. Summary justice was common, and it was acceptable amongst the Amazulu, as it was amongst the English of the same period. A man could be executed in London for stealing bread. The only difference was the manner in which they were done away with, and the fact that the condemning was done by a magistrate or a judge, not an inkozi. And of course, they didn't have a stick driven up their fundament. On his first visit, Isaacs found Shaka entertaining a Portuguese visitor from Delagoa Bay described as a soldier who was buying cattle. This is another example of just how extensive the historical link is between what is modern Maputo and Zululand. The Amazulu king drew a few arbitrary shapes on a piece of paper with a quill, then asked Isaacs and the Portuguese soldier to read what he'd written. They had peered at this inscrutable note as Shaka giggled. It was a joke, he said. The Zulu king laughed a lot at his own jokes and was an incorrigible practical joker. Shaka ordered the Englishman and the Portuguese soldier to wrestle to see which nation was strongest. They pleaded it was too hot for shenanigans of that sort. Shaka let it go. Later they all went on a hunt, and Shaka suddenly shouted that they were being charged by an angry buffalo, possibly the most dangerous animal on the African plain. Isaacs and the Portuguese soldier panicked and ran towards the trees, only to discover Shaka had fooled them with another practical joke. Shaka appeared to understand deep irony. He told Isaacs that it's the custom of all warriors to abstain from living with women. But Isaac said this was done with a smile and indicated that he did not accord with the precept. Shaka leapt up immediately after this comment and disappeared into his palace with a bevy of compliant girls. He may have been a borderline bipolar man, but he definitely did not suffer from Asperger's syndrome. By now, Shaka was waging war with the Asagai as well as rituals and words. He had appropriated the Mkhozi gathering, and by now had also co-opted genealogies and praise singing. Shaka had been born into a system in which family lines were created by being formally split from the parent line. This was to avoid incest, 
It's the principle of something called exogamy. And it happens all over the world to avoid interbreeding while also spreading wealth and subduing aggressive neighbors that creates links between disparate people. And amongst the Zulu, there were two ways of splitting, one called dabuka, or to get torn off, and the other dabula, or to tear off. Dabuka took place when a group achieved political independence and were led away to build a new settlement elsewhere. This group would continue to sing praises about their parent section and were not to be intermarried. But Dabula involved an entirely new section, creating a whole new bunch of praise songs and physically moved away both politically and socially. And here, intermarriage was permissible, a bit like third cousins. Shaka was tinkering with this philosophy. He created many groups or clans by splitting family units in a more endogamous way. These were in real danger now of interbreeding. And these folks actually began to fabricate genealogies to give the impression of being distantly related, when in reality, they were a little too close for genetic comfort. We know who these folks are. The Gazini, the Mgazini, the Mtumbela, Mtlalozi, Mpangisweni. Another cultural effect kicked in around now. The use of insulting rhetoric was adapted by Shaka to fashion a new elite, and he manipulated the language of praises to minimize the threat and close ranks of central families. This notion of being Ntungwa, real Zulu, is one example. He spoke of those in Zululand who he decazed as Amalala, those closer to Port Natal who he overran as Inyakeni, those who'd also been defeated. He insulted the Tele people, saying they weren't cunning enough, that they were Lala, because their tongues lay flat in their mouths. They didn't pronounce Zulu properly. Geography, accent, ethnic differences, military inferiority, social habits all had power, and the Zulu king was a very good wielder of words. The Kumalo people, of whom Mzilikasi is most famous, were not regarded as Abanguni by the Amazulu. They were not proper. The name Mguni is precious in Zululand. It's the most sacred salute of a Zulu king, and Shaka was the first to appropriate this phrase, apparently. He collected praise songs, these intimated status and power. He acquired others' praises, collected like Abuja eggs, or laying claims to the poems of Robert Burns as your own, along with salutations like Bayeti and the royal ceremonial song called Ngoma, which he appropriated from Zwide of the Ndwandwe. He took Ndabazita from the Kunu people. Shaka understood propaganda and spin. It's no surprise that modern political leaders from Zululand like Jacob Zuma idolized this original creator of the Zulu. He uses ethnic symbolism and specially crafted Isuzulu messages with great guile. Soon the English trader called Finn took a real liking to the Zulu way of life. By 1826 and 1827, he'd set up his umuzi called Mpandweni near the Umbokodwe stream, which is close to Isipingo near Durban today. Shockingly, Shaka presented Finn with three large herds of cattle, which were driven to Port Natal from the north, enabling Finn to set up his kraal in the Zulu tradition. Why was the Zulu king so free with his treasure? The answer is Finn had helped Shaka overcome one of his enemies, Sikunyani of the Ndwandwe. He was Zwide's son and heir, and when Zwide eventually died in mid-1825, Sikunyani lost no time in renewing his clan's long-term feud with the Amazulu. By now, he was living just south of the Pongolo River. The Amazulu Amakanda were scattered nearby along the Black Umfalosi River. 
Sikunyani began building his forces around the Pongola in the Izindololwani hills, and by the beginning of 1826, he was good to go. By April 1826, Sikunyani was attacking these Zulu homesteads. Nathaniel Isaacs had been ordered by Shaka to bring one of his larger boats from Port Natal to Kwabulawayo, all the way near modern Ulundi, and the youngster was sweating through the Zululand bush with the Zulu impi dragging this heavy boat to the Zulu king's home. However, during the crossing of the Tugela, which was in flood, the boat broke free and was last seen heading towards the Indian Ocean. But they didn't have time to head it off. Shaka then sent an urgent message to all Amabutu to come quickly, white and black men. His capital was going to be attacked by Sikunyani. When they arrived at Kwabulawayo, none other than Samapunga Kazwide was there, Sikunyani's brother who had switched sides. Shaka waited for the next full moon to attack the Ndwandwe chief. Isaacs waited with Shaka until the impi returned, having looted a booty of cattle, and by April 17th he was back in Port Natal. King had left for Cape Town, meanwhile, to try and rustle up another ship and allowed himself to be interviewed by journalists from the South African Commercial Advertiser, where he called Shaka a despot. Perhaps he was trying to elicit pity from the prospective ship owners. Back in Port Natal, Isaacs then received a visitor on the 13th of June. One of Shaka's messengers arrived to demand that the white traders join a major assault against Sikunyani. Isaacs, Finn, Farewell and a number of other traders were to fight alongside Zulu warriors sometime in September 1826. It's clear from their journals and from Zulu oral tradition that this happened. So, this large army of around 10,000 warriors, although Finn exaggerated later and claimed it was 50,000, headed of course to Nobamba first and Shaka was in the vanguard. Nobamba, if you recall, is the ancestral heartland Umuzi, where the troops would be doctored for war. Then divisions were dispatched along various routes with young boys or carriers called Udibi, followed by the women. The spies, or reconnaissance troops, were sent out ahead. Dust hung around these impis. Some of the youngsters would be trampled to death in a rush for marshy water along the way. Farewell was almost killed by cattle stampeding for the same water. They marched until nine o'clock every night, and eventually arrived at a settlement called Izindani, where they camped. The next day they crossed a treeless plain, and the next night it was so cold that some of the warriors died of hypothermia. They were now in the higher ground above Pongola. They were in forested land and rested in the dense trees for two nights, recovering from their long trek. Some found refuge in a huge cave on a mountain called Inkaba Ka Hawana, which means Hawana's Cave. They ate plundered mealies from nearby villages, and Shaka called on his Pequena Ubuto. They were planning to attack Sikunyani the next day, and by the way, he knew exactly where the Zulu Impi was, and had taken refuge in a mountain stronghold called Izindololwani, as I said, surrounded by rocks on the opposite side of the Mplungamvula stream. This is about 20 kilometers southwest of where the town of Pitratif is today, just north of the modern KwaZulu-Natal and Pumalanga border. The Bekenya pre-warrior-age boys were told to scatter and seize Amabeli corn from the neighboring kraals and gardens, and most did exactly as they were ordered, but some did not. They apparently ate the mealies and fell asleep in the gardens and only returned the next day. Zulu oral storytellers have bad news about what happened to them. Shaka ordered all those who had not come back to go into a gully where they were all killed. Then he advanced on Sikunyanet Izindololwani, which 
is north of the Pongola River, close to where it is joined by the Bavana and Mtola Rivers. This must have been some march from where they had camped. It's between Paul Petersburg and Pongola today. A chief living nearby had decided to side with Shaka, bolstering his forces. Manzini Kachana of the Zungu had defected and would attack alongside the Nomdayana Ibuto. There's a bit of dispute about what happened, which is usual, as you know. So we've managed to piece together what happened. Shaka made his way to a nearby hilltop to watch, which was his way during battles, a bit like Napoleon. However, after the battle began, Shaka withdrew further into the forest and relied on messengers to bring him the latest from the battlefield. The fight did not last long, and the traders and some Khoi who had joined used their muskets. There's some debate about the gory details. We believe this was another battle fought at night, and it was the only battle where Shaka is known to have deployed the horns and chest strategy. Some podcasts ago, I explained that the story that Shaka invented the horns and chest attacking formation is a myth, that he only ever used this technique once in battle, and here it is. The battle of Izintololwane. Pins said the traders began the battle by firing off their weapons. Young Charles McLean disputes this. However, the Zulu version has the Amabuto forming up in two horns surrounding the mountain, and that's why there were horns deployed they needed to surround the Ndwandwe above. But Sikunyani apparently saw the enveloping Zulu and managed to make his escape. The two horns met and the stabbing began. The first clash took around three minutes, and both sides withdrew to see if the other was mortally weakened. Neither side was, so they attacked each other once more, and this time the Ndwandwe were overcome. In the end, about 3,000 Ndwandwe died. What happened afterwards is not debated. Both the traders and Zulu oral tradition describe a rather bloody end, with many of the Ndwandwe women fighting to the death alongside their men. Shaka then ordered everyone to be slaughtered, men, women and children. He wanted none of Sikunyani's people to survive. The aftermath was brutal, that's clear. It's the only occasion in Shaka's history where we know that he ordered women and children to be ethnically cleansed, totally wiped out, that he ordered the entire clan expunged. There's another reason why we know something definite and finite had taken place this event all but destroyed the Ndwandwe memory and explains, as Dan Wiley says, why there is so little in the way of Ndwandwe oral tradition. An entire political group of people was virtually wiped out, and so was their ancient story. Their oral story died with them. They had lived on the northern Zululand territory for hundreds of years. Now their locus of memory had evaporated in one night of violence. With that said, we must end. Next episode, we march with Shaka once more as he moves his main settlement from Kwabulawayo to Kwadukuza, otherwise known as Stanga, which was closer to Port Natal. We'll also focus on Henry Francis Finn, who was to create an entire clan of mixed-race Zulu-speaking South Africans who are fiercely proud of their heritage. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have time. It makes the series visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. And as long as Elon allows, I'm on Twitter. You can direct message me there, at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.